The reading can be found on page 1177. It's taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. So that's page 1177, starting at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way, Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Katrina, thanks very much. Please do keep that open and uh, find the notice sheet and look on the back of that. You'll find an outline, space to scribble, or practice the pictures of our church family that you're going to draw in the directory later on. Up to you. Why don't I pray as we come to God's word? Our loving Father, we praise you that you lay a firm foundation for us in your excellent word. And whether we're dismayed or in fiery trials or in whatever way that we need you, we pray that you strengthen us and help us and cause us to stand firm on you this week. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not entirely uncommon to sometimes struggle with the Bible. We sometimes find it hard when we read it. And even sometimes we find it offensive at first glance. What is uncommon about this passage is we get both those in the first word. If you look down, we get slaves. And within a word, the passage is hard, and some might find that offensive. So I want to spend just a few minutes at the start um, trying to understand what that word is doing there. And hopefully that will clear away any confusion, any offense, so we can come at the rest of the passage. I mean, it says slaves. Does the Bible endorse slavery? Teach slavery? Does the Bible not oppose slavery? Do Christians endorse slavery? Does this church teach Slavery? Not opposed slavery? As soon as we read the word, it's tricky, and I think it's just worth clearing a little bit of ground on that. Uh, Four really quick things. Uh, First of all, when you read the word slave in the Bible, you're not thinking black African slave trade. The Bible doesn't endorse that, and Bible believers were at the forefront, praise God, of changing that. When you read slave in the Bible, you're thinking teachers and headmasters. You're thinking lawyers and estate managers. You're thinking poets and musicians, as well as the more obvious household servants. There were those servants, but they were not generally in the sort of state we'd have seen with the black African slave trade. 
That's the first thing. We need to not think black African slave trade. Secondly, the Bible, the gospel, the news of Jesus that Paul was teaching was for all cultures at all times in all nations throughout the whole of history. And the reason it still speaks today is because Paul was not just writing into the first century. He's writing timeless truth that continues throughout history. If the whole focus of the Bible was to say, we've got to stop first century slave trade, I'm not entirely sure what we'd be expecting from it today. Thirdly, it's great to know, isn't it, that elsewhere Paul does encourage a Christian master to free his Christian slave precisely because they're Christian. In his letter to Philemon, Paul says, I'd like you to do that. You're brothers, you're in the same family. But fourthly, of course, and I want you to hear this rightly. Please, please hear me rightly. Fourthly, Paul's just got some bigger fish to fry. In Ephesians chapter 1, by the time we get to Ephesians 6, we've read a quite a lot of Paul. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, you can know God's entire plan for the history of the whole world and creation. In Ephesians chapter 2, you can know the love and mercy of God that frees you from the slavery you are in to sin and evil. In Ephesians chapter 2 again, we hear, we, we celebrated this on Wednesday in our prayer meeting, that we used to be aliens and strangers. We used to be separate from every blessing. But in Christ, we've been brought near. We've been made fellow citizens. We're family. In Ephesians 3, we see that the church, us lot together, are a demonstration of God's majestic plan to all the spiritual forces in the heavens, angels and demons. Look at us and see God's amazing plan. You see that Paul's got a bigger, a bigger vision in his head. And it's helpful to remember, isn't it, that Paul is in chains when he writes this letter. Most of the slaves in the Roman Empire were in a better state than Paul at this point when he writes. He wrote Ephesians, he wrote Philippians, he wrote other letters in chains for the gospel. And he says this, I know the secret of being content in every circumstance. If I'm fed or I'm hungry, if I'm in need or I've got plenty, I'm still content because I have Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul himself, social and personal condition was not the priority in life. He writes this letter in a horrible situation. And he's not bearing it stoically. He's rejoicing. That's the secret he wants all his readers to focus on. It's the secret of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The gospel that has changed the world in so many ways since it was first written down. And isn't it brilliant that one of the ways it's changed the world is in the abolition of the horrendous slave trade that we celebrated just a year or so ago. We must praise God for that. But you see that Paul's just got a bigger, bigger vision. I hope that helps. I hope that helps clear away some of the potential offense with that word and helps us get into the passage a little bit. You see, the way that we need to understand slave and master language today is not specifically aimed at slaves and masters, but because we're thinking that a slave is maybe a, an estate manager, we're thinking about slaves and masters much more in, in terms of workers and bosses, teams and managers. And it's no surprise, is it? Because this falls in a section of the letter where Paul is saying, look, being a Christian makes a difference to everything. 
the last couple of weeks, we've seen being a Christian makes a difference in our marriages. It makes a difference in how husbands and wives relate to each other. Being a Christian makes a difference in our families. It makes a difference to us as sons and daughters or mums and dads. And here Paul's saying, being a Christian makes a difference at work too. It makes a difference at work too. And basically, certainly back then, mum and dad, kids, and your work position, that was pretty much the bulk of your life. And for some of us, for many of us, that might be the case today. Paul's saying, look, being a Christian cashes out in a whole host of practical ways. In fact, that's the whole focus of the second half of Paul's letter. Paul says to them at the beginning of the second half, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He goes on, don't live like the world. You've got to live like those who've been saved by King Jesus. And I think, therefore, it's really helpful because it answers a question that many of us have, a conversation that I've had time and time again, and many of us will have had here at church. How can I be distinctive at work as a Christian? How can I be different in my office? In what ways can I show that I'm a Christian by the way that I work? And I think we all find this pretty hard. We all find it hard. What can I do? How can I be different for Jesus' sake? How can I be different for the sake of a watching world? What's going to be different about me? And in Ephesians 6, we find clear teaching, good reasons, and the power to change. So let's flick on, and let's get into the passage. First up, slaves obey. The passage, I think, is structurally very simple. Hopefully you spotted it. There's just two commands, aren't there, in the passage. Verse 5, slaves obey, and verse 9, masters Do not threaten. Those are the two commands in the passage. And you'll notice that I've included the slave and master language on the outline. I've just explained to us, haven't I, that it's not really about slaves and masters for today. It's about work. I've kept the language on the outline. Now, why is that? The answer is the passage has got a big play on words going on that's really clear in the original. So in the passage, when you come across the word masters in verse 5, slaves obey your masters, that's the word kurios. And that's exactly the same word that's translated Lord. So when you get to Lord, verse 7, and Lord, verse 8, and Master, verse 9, it's the same word. So what we've got is a kind of double word play going on here. It basically says, Slaves, obey your masters as slaves of the master, Jesus, and masters, treat your slaves well, Because you're all slaves of the same master. So you've got a kind of double wordplay going on, which is why I've kept the language in. It's master-slave wordplay. And the key idea, I think, in the first section is fairly obvious. Obey your masters as you would Christ, as wholehearted slaves. So let's have a look at that. Three times you get this wholeheartedness. Three times you get slaves of Christ. Let's have a look at each of them. Wholeheartedness. So look at verse 5. With sincerity... Of heart. Verse 6, doing the will of God from your heart. Verse 7, wholeheartedly. Now, I think we're pretty clear what wholehearted means. I mean, the obvious thing is wholehearted is not half hearted. So, we've all been there, haven't we? You're on Oxford Street and you see a couple shopping. And one of them is shopping wholeheartedly, and the other is shopping half heartedly. I'm not specifying which is doing which. 
And if you've ever seen us shopping, we're both pretty half-hearted, so we're a rubbish illustration. But we all know what I'm talking about. We've seen people running wholeheartedly, and we've seen people running half-heartedly. It's called jogging. Now, my running coach, when I was at school, had a little phrase, lots of jogging makes a good jogger. In other words, if you want to run, you've got to run. Jogging's useless. We know the difference, running and jogging. We've seen guys, haven't we? Someone's late for the bus. If they really want to make it, they're pumping their arms. If they quite like to make it, they're sort of, you know, fast walk. Then they can go to work late and say, oh, sorry, missed the bus. <laughs> Half-heartedly, wholeheartedly. Or perhaps you need to come around to 82 Barrel Road and let Katie and I demonstrate the difference between half-heartedness and wholeheartedness because you could watch us clean the house. And Katie will model wholeheartedness and I'll look like I'm doing something, probably. I might be waving a duster around. And the specific thing, I think, in verse 6, this is really, really hard, isn't it? Verse 6, look at verse 6. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you. Yikes. Not just when they're looking at you. We're called not to be superficial. We're not just to work hard when the boss is in the room. That's great. My boss is very, very rarely in my study. So does that mean, well, I used to be a math teacher. We had a kind of big open plan office. There were 14 members of the department. Uh, I had my little desk. It was the worst desk because I, uh, you know, I was the youngest member of the department. Uh, and there was a kettle in the corner. And the, and the head of the department had a separate office across the, um, the other side of the building. Now, ask yourself the question, just a random moment when I'm at my, study, my desk. Does my work change when my boss comes in the room? Let's say I was sitting there thinking, oh, I could really fancy a coffee. And I'm just about to get up, but the door handle opens and there's Tony Drake. He walks in. Now, ask yourself the question, does the young Andrew Towner alter his behavior at that moment because his boss, Tony Drake, walks in. Does he suddenly and mysteriously care very much about marking very neatly, very carefully, actually reading the, the working, not just the answer at the bottom? Does his handwriting and his marking improve when his boss walks in the door? Does he decide he can wait five minutes for that coffee until his boss has safely left until his next lesson? First year of teaching, particularly, first and second year of teaching are very hard work. You're, you're planning all your lessons, and everything just takes ages. So regularly, I was in that office till 10, 10.30 at night, and I'm there. And of course, there's no chance of my boss walking in at this point, because he's, he's been teaching for 20 years. He's gone home. There I am, and I'm marking year 12, long division. So not year 12, 12-year-olds, 12 year 8. 12-year-old boys, long division. I know full well they don't care. They really don't care. Why do I stay there? Or did I stay there and do a good job? Or did I skimp and go home? Why would I stay there? And why would I work hard at that? Now, the answer is, of course, this passage just convicts me. And I know that for some of us here, it is marking maths. Thank you, Charlie. But for not all of us, is it marking maths homework? But what is it in your office? What are the things that are menial or dull or unimportant? What are the ways in which we're tempted to behave differently when our boss is in the room and our boss is not in the room? Verse 6, not just to win their favor when their eyes on you. Paul says, look, a distinctive Christian attitude to work, a spirit-filled, God-empowered attitude to our work 
is wholehearted, whether our boss can see us or not. Now, you might spot the irony here. I mean, we're in London, central London. We're in a recession, and the workplace is a hard place to be at the moment because many of us are really stressed and worried whether we're still going to be there in a month's time. And you're sitting here on a Sunday morning hearing a sermon that's telling you to work really hard. There's a little bit of irony in that, isn't there? We need to understand, don't we, that the Bible's not telling us to make work our God. The Bible's telling us, with Jesus Christ as your God, it's really good to do a good job at work. It's the way you serve him. I think it's helpful if we're not in work right now. I think it's helpful because it helps us to have a right view of work. If and when God gives us another job and we go back in the workplace, who or what will we be working for? Is it going to be for King Jesus? So it's really helpful whether we're at work or not. We need to know that work is a great gift from God to be enjoyed, to be done wholeheartedly for his sake. But it is a rubbish master, a rubbish Lord. And we see that because the motivation of the passage is that we're to do it as slaves of Christ. Do you see that? Slaves of Christ, verse 6. Not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ. And again, you get the same idea in verse 5. As you would obey Christ, verse 7, as serving the Lord. Now, I think this sounds a bit strange. I think we're used to the idea that we can serve Jesus by serving other people. So if we're on the coffee rotor, we're used to the idea that by serving coffee, we're serving other people, and that's a way of serving Jesus. Or if we're serving at crash, we know, don't we, that the people that are serving our kids right now are doing it as a way of serving Jesus. Or if you're on the PowerPoint, or the sound desk, or the music rotor, if you're the treasurer, if you're whatever we do here, we're happy with the idea that to serve Jesus, we serve other people. I wonder if it's a different idea, though, to realize that to serve Jesus, you serve your boss at work. I wonder if that's a bit less common. But look at verse 7. Serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the law, not man. Now, as if is not saying behave as if you're a red Indian. Sort of let's pretend. That's not what the word's getting at. It's saying serve wholeheartedly because you're serving the Lord, not man. This passage is not saying let's pretend. It's saying you really are. Our motivation for our wholeheartedness at work has got to be our status of slaves of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Master. And again, that's pretty unusual language, isn't it, to use our relationship to God. We're used to the Bible having a relationship with God as Father. Jesus is our Savior. The Holy Spirit's our comforter. We're used to that more tactile language. And it's fair to say that predominates in the Bible. But it's not exclusive. Three times at the start of his letters, Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ. Romans, Philippians, and Titus. I write to you as a slave of Christ. It's language he uses of himself in his preaching ministry. I'm doing it as a slave of Christ. And in fact, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says explicitly, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. 
You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And that's why the slave language is brilliant. Because in the Bible, when it says you were bought at a price, the word we use for that is redemption. It's redemption language. To redeem is to buy back. So you have to think a bit like a pawnbroker. I'm glad to say I've never used a pawnbroker. I've never been to one. But what happens in a pawnbroker is you go and buy back something that's in the shop. You have to pay a price to get back something. And in the Bible, what happens is we sell ourselves in slavery to sin. And God buys us back with the blood of Christ. We've been bought back with a price, the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed. And that's why, in one sense, it's really important to think of ourselves as slaves of Christ. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Now, how does God want his slaves to behave? Well, as soon as you ask that question, you want to put in the rest of the Bible's teaching, don't you? How does God want his slaves to behave? He wants them to call him Abba, Father, Daddy. He makes them his heirs, his sons. Jesus said to his disciples, you're no longer slaves. You're no longer servants who don't know their master's business. So we need to not think of ourselves exclusively in the slavery category. But it is part of the Bible's picture. And it's certainly the motivation here. And it raises our eye from our master we can see in the office, the master at the end of the telephone, the master who uh, governs your inbox, to the master who's in heaven. And the passage says, obey that master because of that master. Your slavery is not to your earthly master, but to your heavenly master. Do you see, it's trying to raise our eyes to the real, true master. Now, of course, in these relationships, we're not to obey exclusively, particularly if we're asked to sin. If at work you're required to lie, if you're required to send an email that's not true, well, don't do it. But the focus here is our general attitude is to obey. Because we've submitted to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Master, we'd have a general attitude of obedience, in fact, across everything, across marriage, across family, and across work. And the words in verse 5 are very surprising. Do you see those words there? Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. They're slightly softer here in this translation. The words actually are fear and trembling. So elsewhere, they're translated fear and trembling. So Paul famously says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And when he talks about his preaching visit to Corinth, he says, I came to you in weakness with fear and much trembling. So that helps us understand that fear and trembling is not a morbid kind of, I might die. Fear and trembling is not a morbid worry about life and health. But fear and trembling is a really serious concern to honor God. When Paul's preaching, he says, I'm preaching with fear and trembling. He's not worried that the raised pulse rate is going to kill him. He just wants to do a good job for his master. It's quite an extreme way of stating it, isn't it? Work out your salvation really carefully because it really matters. Paul wants to preach at Corinth really carefully because what he says is a mouthpiece of God really matters. He wants to honor God. And this passage says, 
Work out how you honor your masters in the office really carefully to honor God. So you get a new job and you've got a month left at the end of your contract. The references have gone out. You sign on the dotted line. It's all done and dusted. In a month's time, you're leaving. You're going somewhere else. You've got a month left in the office. How does your work ethic change? And what might that reveal about what you're working for? If you get the reference, you get the boxes ticked, it's all done and dusted. So you stop working as hard. It might reveal, mightn't it, that we were working for the reference. We're working to tick a box. Rather than giving ourselves as wholehearted slaves of Christ. If you come to that great moment where you decide you don't want promotion anymore, you're happy at the level you're at, and you're going to be happy there for ages. If that decision alters our motivation in our workplace. It might be the case, mightn't it, that we were working for the promotion, working for the approval of the boss, working for the reference. It might be. It might just be wisdom. It might be why you've decided to not take promotion. You might just want to say, oh, I could do that for Christ. I could work for that promotion for Christ, but I'm going to choose not to, so I've got a bit more time to serve Christ in other ways. So I'm not saying it definitely does, but it might reveal our hearts. Do you see? Not definitely, but it might reveal our hearts. You see, it's very easy, is it not, to work for ourselves, to work for our reputations. And we need to find some good questions to ask ourselves, to examine our hearts, to see whether we're working as slaves of Christ. The temptation I always found was to work really hard to impress my boss. When he could see me, I would work hard. If I was teaching and he walked past the window, it would just change. It would change in me. But do you remember that the boss we're talking about here in this passage is Jesus Christ, and he sees me 24-7. He sees me at 10.30 when I'm trying to do that marking for 12-year-olds who don't care about long division. Tony Drake, the head of the department, may not be in the room. But the boss I'm really working for, he's in the room. And he sees me. And he sees my heart. But the great encouragement, verse 8, is a really great encouragement. If this is convicting, and I take it that it it probably is for some of us here, look at verse 8. He will reward you. He will reward you. The encouragement is that for all the good things we do, particularly in our work environment, we'll be rewarded. For every good deed, for all the good you do, you'll be rewarded by Jesus Christ himself, your master. Now, the Bible gives a whole bunch of different pictures about these rewards. In Revelation 21, we hear that he, Jesus, will wipe every tear from your eye. He will personally take care of you for all the things you found hard in life. We hear elsewhere that there's a welcome for those who've obeyed God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We can't know, I don't think, exactly what form these rewards will take, but the Bible's clear that the primary and major joy of eternity in heaven is Jesus Christ himself. Someone preached on these verses uh, 40 years ago, just down the road in London, and he said, maybe, just maybe, one look in Jesus' eye will be all the reward we ever need. The primary reward is Jesus. And I take it that was a real encouragement to slaves back in the first century. 
do good things for our imperfect master, Jesus will reward you. I take it as a great encouragement for us now, isn't it? Work wholeheartedly for King Jesus in your office, and you will be rewarded for the good things you do. One day it'll be worth it. But then the passage turns from servants, from slaves, from workers, to masters. It's a much shorter section of the passage, and therefore you'll be pleased to know it's a much shorter section of the sermon. And the basic command is, do you see verse 9? In the same way. That's why it's a lot shorter in the passage and the sermon. It's basically saying masters do the same stuff. Masters do the same things. And that's a shock, isn't it? It's a shock in today's culture because today's culture is obsessed by how to be a good manager. If you look on Amazon, look in a bookshop, find how many books there are on how to be a really good manager. Management for growth. Management for success. Management for whatever. The 60-minute manager has sold how many millions of copies? And new books seem to come out every month. The Bible does not start with that question. The Bible says, learn to be a slave. Learn to be a servant. Learn to be a worker. Oh, and by the way, when you're managing, do the same things. Really interesting, isn't it? The Bible's not obsessed with us being up the career ladder, us multiplying our company, us doing really good things for the fame of our name. The Bible's concerned with how do we relate to those above us? Do we know that we're relating to them as to Christ? And then it says, oh, by the way, managers do the same stuff. The same thing applies when you're a manager. See, the 60-minute manager is a very well-known book. How many of us have heard of a book called The 60-Minute Worker? The 60-Minute Server? Well, perhaps that's because the Bible has still outsold The 60-Minute Manager. And this book is saying how to be a worker. But the key command for masters, for those of us in responsibility at work, is don't threaten. Don't threaten. Back in the first century, masters had extreme rights over their slaves. They really did. Uh, They could uh, put them through forced labor. They could beat them. It was very common to threaten your female slaves with rape. That was a very common way of disciplining your servants. The worst one, I think, was that they would separate families. So there'd be a bunch of servants in a household, a husband and wife, they'd be married, they'd be children. And of course, the threat the master had was, I'll sell you to someone else. That's an awful threat. That's an awful threat, isn't it? A horrible thing to be able to do. Praise God, today we don't live with those sort of things. Praise God, the world, particularly in the West, is a very different place. But the command not to threaten, I think, still applies because the point is, don't keep them down with reminders about their status, your authority over them. You're writing a reference for them one day. I think this can be quite subtle for many of us. I think many of us have picked up ways of doing this that are not obvious. There's no clenched fist. There's no raised voice. We use this, I think, easily as a management technique, don't we? We can keep people rigorously in their rightful place by a harsh look. We can hint that they'd better be careful with a certain tone of voice, a brusque comment, a threatening gesture. We really can do this without raising our hands or our voices because we're so subtle. But a subtle sin is still a sin, and Paul says, don't do it. 
Don't do it. And the reason is, masters, don't threaten because Jesus is your master. Masters, don't threaten. You're not your master. You're not their master. Jesus is. I don't know if you know how Roman triumphs happened. If a Roman general won a huge victory, they would be honored with a triumph. And the whole of Rome was decked out. It was a massive celebration. And they'd proceed through a a massive arch in the walls. And there'd be a huge number of uh, all their soldiers, um, all their chariots. And behind at the back would be all the slaves. And they'd have all the people they've uh, brought back from their victory. And a massive triumph. And they'd be adored by all the people of Rome and welcomed by the Senate. And you know that the, the general would be there in his chariot. And do you know there was a slave in the chariot with him? Do you know this? And the slave's job is to whisper in his ear, you're a man, not a God. You're a man, not a God. Because it was such a triumphant thing that the danger was that the general would think too highly of himself. So he had a servant, a slave, behind him to whisper in his ear, you're a man, not a God. You're a man, not a God. And that's, I think, what verse 9 is doing. It's saying, masters, just remember, you and those who work for you have a master in common. That is God. You're a man, not a God. Don't threaten. You're a man, not a God. And the contrast is interesting, isn't it? Verse 8 is great encouragement to servants. Servants, be encouraged. You'll be rewarded. Verse 9, masters, God is impartial. Now that's not so much of an encouragement, is it? Slaves are encouraged. You'll be rewarded. Masters, God is impartial. God isn't biased towards the strong or the successful. At the judgment seat of Christ, the CEO and the street sleeper, street sweeper, fare exactly the same. God is impartial and our position now means nothing then. There's a little servant standing behind you saying, you're a man, not a God. You're a man, not a God. Treat those servants, those slaves, those workers, that team in the same way. Don't threaten them. Work with them and for them and over them as a slave of Jesus Christ. Just like they're doing for you. Two quick things to finish then. I think this passage asks the question, who are we working for? Who are we working for? Whose approval do you strive for in your workplace? Is it primarily your bosses or is it primarily God's? For whose good are you working? Is it primarily yours or primarily God's? I know it's a harsh question. I know it's hard, but it's worth just trying to sharpen it for a second because we all find this so hard. And sometimes a sharp question is helpful for us, isn't it? Now, it's really important. The passage is not endorsing a workaholicism. The passage is not saying, look, you're slave to Jesus. Go slave to your boss 24-7. That's not what the passage is saying. It's not endorsing work as a God like that. Instead, as slaves of Christ, both of us, workers and bosses, we're to wholeheartedly work for Christ the Master. And if there comes a moment where you have to choose between your boss's written reference and the approval of your saviour, your lord, your master in heaven, then it's that moment that helps us realise who we're working for, isn't it? If there comes a moment where you've got to choose, and most of us come to those moments fairly regularly, 
And we hate them, don't we? They're really awkward. It's at that moment that our hearts are most revealed, I think. Work wholeheartedly for Jesus. And sometimes the moments of choice can betray who we are working for. But finally, you might get to the end of the passage and think, uh, yikes, that sounds quite hard. Well, we're in a whole section of the letter that's talking about the spirit-filled life. It's talking about what does a Christian's life look like when the power of God in the person of his Holy Spirit, who is himself God, is at work in our lives. These are not things we can do on our own. We can't read these verses and say, oh, I'm going to go and do that this week. And particularly if you're here and you wouldn't want to call yourself a Christian, please don't go and try and live like this. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's what we'll look like as we're spirit-filled people. So for Christians, go on being filled with the Spirit. That's what 5 verse 18 is saying. It's a continuous. Go on being filled with the Spirit. Keep on. And that'll help you in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace. It'll help you across the whole of life. We can do these things only with God's help. But if you wouldn't want to call yourself a Christian here, I wonder two things for you. Number one, can I say, if you want really good workers, I suggest you appoint Christians. If you're looking for people who are going to work really well in your office, who are going to be a real joy to manage, who are you going to want to appoint? Christians. I just encourage you on that one. I don't know the legalities of that. I've not checked them out. There might be people who know. Appoint Christians. They'll be great. They won't just work when you walk into the room to win your favor. But I wonder, if we want to be workers like that, if we want that sort of right attitude of work, it's not a God, but we can still wholeheartedly give ourselves to it. If you want to get work in its right perspective, you need to do it for King Jesus. If you want to have your head and heart clear on why you're doing what you're doing most days for most of the day, you need Jesus. And when you call him Lord and Master, when he buys you back, it'll all make sense. And what a joy that'll be. One I pray. Our loving Father, we praise you that you loved us enough to buy us back. We, lo- we praise you that we call you Lord and Master, as well as Saviour and Comforter. And we pray, Father, that it might be the case that this week, in and about our work, in and about all of our lives, we are motivated rightly by that relationship that particularly our relationship with our earthly masters will be governed by knowledge of you as our heavenly master. Praise you for the encouragement of rewards. And we pray you teach us to live wholeheartedly, to serve wholeheartedly with our eyes raised. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's our habit here to take questions after the sermon. We do that because we think it helps us. Uh, it helps the preacher because it means that we know the Bible's in charge and not, not some bloke standing at the front. And we do it because we think it helps us to reflect on the sermon. Uh, if it wouldn't help you, if it sounds a horrible thing, please uh, sit still, do nothing. Talk about the weather. But if it would help you, why not turn to someone next to you, twos and threes, and discuss anything striking from the passage from the sermon, and then in a few minutes' time you can ask questions. And uh, that might encourage us all together. So let's take a couple of minutes. Great, here's a chance to ask your question, or if someone shy had a good question they don't want to ask, you can ask it for them. And that's a good way of serving.
Alistair. Thank you. So the question is the word bondservant um, and what, what would that mean and, and weren't there years of release and so on? Uh, yeah, it, it, is, it is complicated and I, I kind of didn't go into it in much detail but I, I just wanted to say that really we're thinking about a, a who are you working for, who's your boss kind of relationship. There were different types of slavery. Uh, certainly in Acts 23, Felix, the governor that Paul comes up in front of uh, on his travels, had been a, ser- a slave. And then he'd not only been freed, but he'd become the governor of a Roman province. So it probably wasn't as static a position as we might think, because we import our black African slave trade to the word. But actually, it was a, much, it was a bit of a more varied thing. That's helpful. Interestingly, though, 20 to 35% of the Roman Empire were slaves, on average. Some only in for five years, seven years, until they could work up. Yep. But that's why I took it to the boss-worker relationship. I just kept the language because of the play on words in the passage. That's a good question. Thank you. Sharon. How does it apply to homemakers? Yeah. I, I wonder whether by the time you get to this point in Ephesians 6, homemakers have just had a left hook and a right hook. Um, we've had wives and husbands. We've had parents and children. So it might be that this doesn't apply directly to homemakers in the same way. And that's because we're in a section of the letter which is application. Uh, And he's just applied this relationship with Christ very clearly, both to marriage and to home. Um, So I wouldn't want to take the slavery master language and start applying that to home. But I think we're seeing seeing that there's an appropriate attitude of submission to others because of our submission to Christ, which is cashed out in a whole bunch of different ways, and here's one of them. Sure. There's a great hymn, isn't there? Thank you, that's very helpful. So God sees um, the menial things we do, and he will reward them. One of the hymns that was written off the back of this passage was, um, a servant with his claws makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. Which is exactly that. When you're hoovering the stairs and no one sees, God sees, he'll reward. That's helpful. Carrie. Sure. So we have a master, whether we're in paid employment or not. That master is Jesus Christ. Paul's very specifically, though, applying it to slaves and masters. But the general principle is, is, yeah, a bigger one. I was trying to go with the grain of the passage, but these things are all true too. Do catch me later if you've got more questions.